Good morning, Convergent Church. So grateful to be gathered with you guys. Grateful for the privilege to open God's Word with you. Thank you for taking time uh, out of your weekend to prioritize the worshiping of God with the saints. This morning, go ahead, if you got your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Last week, we began a brand new sermon series titled, Blessed, A Journey Through the Beatitudes. Now, beatitude, by way of refresher, meaning supreme blessedness or exalted happiness. It's the state of the utmost bliss. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached, Jesus begins with the pronouncement of these eight beatitudes or these eight signs of blessedness. These are the characteristics of those who are truly blessed. Now, the question I'd like to begin with this morning is this. When do you feel the most blessed? What is it that characterizes those moments where you're just like, oh gosh, I've got to pinch myself. I feel so blessed right now. For those of you who utilize social media, if you're having trouble coming up with the answer to this question, think about what you've been posting on Instagram. Which posts get the hashtag blessed? Maybe it's a picture of that new car, hashtag blessed. Maybe it's an acceptance letter or a diploma from that college that you always dreamed about going to. Hashtag blessed. Maybe it's a, it's a picture of your toes sunken into the sand on a tropical coastline. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> Maybe it's a picture of your grandkids. Hashtag blessed. Or if you're like me, maybe it's a picture of one of your many, many guitars, and you go, hashtag blessed. I don't know about you, but I think it's fair to say that we most often estimate our own state of blessedness in direct proportion to our external material gains in this world, do we not? We most often perceive our blessings as being things like good health or a good family or a good job or a good 401k or the house with the white picket fence in the suburb or a vacation to one of those tropical destinations, or nice cars, and so on. By and large, these are external, material gains. That's to say, they're things that we can't take with us from this life into the next. And while some of these things certainly are blessing, a blessing, there's, and there's nothing inherently wrong with them, Jesus wants more for us. He has greater things in store for us. Here's the thing, when Jesus came to this world, he turned it completely upside down, right? When the Son of God comes to earth, people would have likely imagined that he would have been hanging out with the people that were the externally religious people. But was that who Jesus spent the majority of his time with? No, we see him spending the lion's share of his time with the outcasts, with those who were in adulterous relationships, those who were extortionist tax collectors, right? These corrupt IRS agents of their day. Um, those who were physically ill, those who were impoverished, these were the kinds of people that Jesus was found spending time with, not the externally religious people. Or one would think that as the all-creating Son of God, when Jesus came to this earth, he would have had a procession fit for a king. But when he enters the city, he rides in on a donkey that he borrowed from somebody else. 
While we're prone to think of greatness in terms of an individual's rule over other people, right? We think about presidents who are ruling the nation. We think about celebrities who have massive social media followings. We think about athletes. We think about billionaire entrepreneurs. Jesus said that the greatest among us is actually the one who is the servant of all. Thus, one's measure of greatness isn't determined by their ruling over others, but rather their, the magnitude of their service unto others. So what if, just what if, our understanding of blessedness or happiness is off base too? Well, as we saw last week and we'll continue to see throughout the scope of the series, Jesus defines blessedness in a way that contradicts our common disposition. Last week we were told, Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we had written that, it would have likely had said something like, blessed are the prosperous in spirit. Let's be honest, as the Christian church, we often stink at embracing struggle, at grieving the hard things in life. We stink at taking the mask off to expose the remaining darkness inside of us. But on Sundays, right, we smile, we pretend like everything's okay, and when someone asks how we're doing, we say, doing great, even when we're not. Yet here we see the kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to those who have it all together, but rather those who confess that they are spiritually bankrupt. It belongs to those who see their spiritual poverty and confess their need for God. Spiritual poverty is the prerequisite to the kingdom of heaven. That's to say no one will ever get to heaven based upon their own merit or their own good works of their hands. This is where the Pharisees of Jesus' day went so wrong. They thought that by keeping these certain external laws that they could earn God's favor, that they could earn their way into heaven. But here's the problem. The law wasn't given as a ladder or a mountain that we need to climb up to earn God's favor. Rather, it was given as a measuring stick to reveal our utter inability to make ourselves holy. The law was given to drive us to our knees, to confess our need for the grace and mercy of God. To be poor in spirit is to understand that we have nothing of value in and of ourselves to offer God. Being poor in spirit is to confess that we are completely destitute and unable to deliver ourselves from our sin. In this first beatitude, Jesus is saying that irregardless of your status in life, right, your pedigree, your family tree, irregardless of your wealth or the good deeds that you've done, you must recognize your spiritual poverty before you can come to God in faith to receive the salvation that he offers. The kingdom of God does not belong to those who think that they can get there on their own. That's the first stage of spiritual blessing, confessing your spiritual poverty, And this morning, we're going to dive into the second stage. But before we do that, for those of you who are married, do you ever ever argue with your spouse? Never. Never? Well, 
One of our values here at Convergent Church is gospel transparency. So allow, my, allow me to use myself as an illustration because my wife and I sure do fight and argue a lot. We've been married for three years now and people go, oh, you guys, you guys must still be in the honeymoon phase. But I assure you that phase ended long, long ago. I remember shortly after we were married, returning to the pastor who did our pre-marriage counseling for a six-month checkup. And he asked us how we were doing. He asked us what the points of contention were in our relationship and so on. So we both shared this laundry list of things that we had, quote-unquote, learned about one another in our first six months of marriage, also known as the things that were driving one another crazy, to which our counselor leaned back and a grin came across his face. And he said, ah, it sounds like you guys are learning how to dance. And when you're learning how to dance, you're bound to step on one another's toes. And this came as a great relief to us because I think that each one of us thought that we had married a crazy person and that there was something radically, radically wrong with our relationship. At any rate, we still regularly have disagreements. Sometimes uh, things get heated, and usually when we're in the thick of it, I'll say something to the extent of, well, I'm sorry I'm such a horrible husband. (laughs) Or maybe even, well, I'm sorry that you married such a horrible person. Laugh if you will, but that's typically the point where I'm like, all right, I can't keep going in circles. I'll take the blame. Today, I'll be the bad guy. Can we go back to normal? But what God is slowly teaching me in my own failures in this area, and what we're going to see in the text this morning, is that there's a difference between merely saying something and feeling the reality of it, believing it in your very soul. There's a difference between acknowledging something and grieving it. There's a difference between lip service and sincerity. In my case, there's a difference between giving voice to the reality that I'm not always the best husband and actually emotionally engaging with that reality that I I probably need to change some things in my life. As John Stott once said, he said, confession is one thing, contrition is another. But enough about my marriage. We'll circle, we'll circle back to that. But let's go ahead and read in our text this morning. Let's begin reading um, in verse 3 again, and then we'll go into verse 4 so we can see kind of like the logistical flow of what's happening here. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he follows it up with, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Interesting. Now, by way of refresher, the the Greek word blessed that's being used throughout this section of the Sermon on the Mount translates as happy or to be envied. It's describing a believer in an enviable position as being one who is a beneficiary of God's provision. Contrastingly, right, to mourn means to lament. It means to manifest grief. It means to feel guilt. And when you put those two things together, right, blessedness and mourning, we find ourselves with quite the paradox, don't we? It's as if Jesus is saying, happy are those who are unhappy. Or those who grieve are to be envied. 
I don't know about you, but I most often don't equate mourning with the notion of being blessed, right? No normal human being wakes up and gets out of bed, takes a sip of their coffee and goes, ah, it's a great day to mourn today. I just feel so blessed. Now, those of you who struggle with anxiety or depression in the midst of a dark day, as you mourn within, do you think, goodness, I feel really blessed right now. No, that's, that's crazy. Of course not. Many in our church here have had loved ones pass away in this last year, and mourning this kind of loss is a very heavy thing. If you've experienced this recently, it's not something that you would wish upon anyone. And if we're honest, it feels more like a curse than it does a blessing. So how can these two things possibly coexist? Blessing and mourning. Before we come to an understanding of how mourning is actually a blessing, I thought it would be helpful to ask the question, just what is it that we are to mourn? At first glance, the the verse seems a little ambiguous. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Is all mourning a blessing unilaterally? Will all people who mourn over something be comforted? Well, let's consider 2 Corinthians 7.10. It says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We see here that some mourning leads to life, and some mourning in turn leads to death. So it's not unilateral. That means Jesus has something more specific, something more particular in view here with this beatitude. If you ever see something in the Bible like this and it it doesn't seem readily clear to you, the best thing that we can do is let Scripture interpret Scripture. It's helpful to ask, how is this particular word, in this case, mourn, how has this word been used in other places throughout the Scripture? And then start digging and find out. I did a little digging for myself this week, and here's what I came up with for the word mourn. We, We see it in James 4, verses 6 through 10. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Here we see James admonish the church to mourn their own indwelling sin. He's saying, grieve over your sin, mourn over your sin, humble yourself and cry out to God to deliver you from your sin. Now, another place where we see this word used is 1 Corinthians 5 in verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and are you arrogant you ought not rather to mourn if you've ever read through Paul's letters to the Corinthians you know he doesn't have very many positive things to say Uh, they were quite a carnal church as individuals were living openly in unrepentant sin and Nobody was holding anybody accountable. Nobody was entering into the difficult but loving work of addressing sin and calling for repentance, the turning away from that sin. 
As such, Paul is saying, listen, y'all have some things going on in your church that not even the unbelieving world tolerates. Namely, you've got a man that's presumably sleeping with his own stepmother, but you've turned a blind eye to this. You should be mourning over the sin. Here we see Paul admonishing the church to mourn over the prevailing sin of others in their community. Again to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 21. Paul writes, I fear that when I come again, God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Again with, the, again with the Corinthians, Paul is saying, due to their unrepentance after his lovingly yet stern rebuke in his first letter, there are still people living in sexual sin, and he's going to have to mourn their continued rebellion against God. Again, we see this mourning over the sins of others. Paul's heart is broken over the worldly rebellion. And lastly, Mark 16, 9 through 10. It says, Now when he, Jesus, rose on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. After Jesus' trial, his brutal beatings, his crucifixion and subsequent death on a cross and burial, he first appears to Mary Magdalene, she then went to the other disciples to tell them that Jesus, in fact, wasn't dead, that he had, in fact, resurrected. And when she found them, it says that they were mourning. They were weeping over his death. Here we see them mourning over their beloved brother, over their Lord Jesus. From this survey, we can deduce at least three things that are fitting for us to mourn as believers. Remember, Paul said that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. With this in mind, here's what I believe Jesus has in mind for us to mourn, at least these three things. One, our own sin. Two, the sin of others, the sin of the world. And three, the brokenness of this world under the curse of sin. Now, allow me to circle back to my and Sarah's arguing with one another. I'm sure some of you are probably like, Sheesh, it sounds like our pastor could probably use some counseling. Uh, and that's probably true. But I shared that with you as an illustration to better understand the heart of what Jesus is getting at with these first couple of Beatitudes. His point is this. It's one thing to be poor in spirit and acknowledge it. It's quite another to grieve it and to mourn over it. Just as it's one thing for me to acknowledge that I'm not always uh, a great husband in the midst of one of our arguments, but it's quite another to feel the weight of that and feel moved to repent, to turn away from the way that I've been acting, to grieve and to resolve to do better. God requires both confession and contrition, as John Stott said, that we be poor in spirit and mourn the reality of the abiding sin in ourselves and those around us and the brokenness of this world under the curse of sin, that it would move our hearts to action. Now, that's heavy, right? I know most of us would much prefer to be happy all the time, but here we see that 
part of our sanctification, part of our growing more and more into the image of Jesus is actually to take those things in front of us that fall short, take those things that are within us and to mourn over them, to lament over them, to, to hate the sin in our lives, to hate the sin that we see in others, to hate the brokenness of the world. But now here is the reward of this blessing, the reward of mourning, and that is God's comfort. It says, blessed are those who mourn these things, for they shall be comforted. The blessing isn't simply the mourning, but that we would mourn over such things and be comforted. This word comfort is speaking of uh, God's nearness to us. It actually has this connotation of his personal consolation. That is to say, when you mourn over your sin or when you mourn over the sin of others, when you mourn over the brokenness of the world, the blessing is that in those moments, you will be consoled by God himself. You will be strengthened by God. You will be refreshed by God. He will turn, as the psalmist says, he'll turn your mourning into dancing. We will be consoled by God. We will be strengthened by God. We will be refreshed by God, and our mourning will be turned to joy. He is our blessing. He is our reward. So if you find yourself in a dark place this morning, if your heart is grieving something, you may be saying to yourself, that's great, but when? When will I know this comfort? Because sometimes it feels hard just to carry on. Let me assure you that I hear you and that I know that pain, but even more than that, your comforter, God hears you and he knows your pain. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says this. It says, since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus has felt whatever grief it is that you're feeling this morning, and he invites you to bring it to him. He is eager to bear your burdens with you. In fact, he promises to give us rest. I believe each one of these things that we are to mourn are accompanied by a present reality of consolation, but then also a, a future fulfillment. So let's begin with our own sin. We could say, blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they will be comforted. Is the reality of your sin crushing you this morning? Are you grieving? Do you feel guilt over your sin against God or your sin against another person? First and foremost, praise God because being able to see your sin and feel conviction is actually a gift from God, right? There are billions and billions of people walking the face of this earth right now in spiritual blindness, completely oblivious to their depravity, yet God has given you eyes to see yours. And he is your comforter. 
This is your present reality of comfort. If you have placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus, his substitutionary death on a cross in your place for your sin, all of your past sin and present sin and even future sin has been totally and completely absolved. May that comfort your heart this morning. 1 John 1.9 declares, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 8.1, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14, it says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you have placed your faith in Jesus right now, at this present moment, you stand holy and blameless before the God of the universe. When he looks upon you, he doesn't see your sin, but he sees the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus. 1 John 2, 1. John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now here's something interesting. The word advocate here comes from the same root word as mourn. It's the Greek word parakletos. It's where uh, the word paraclete comes from. It's speaking of Jesus as our legal advocate. One of the ways that he comforts us is he pleads our case before the Father when we sin. He declares, Father, the defendant is not guilty because remember, remember the plan that we had. Remember how I paid the price for their sin. As our comforter, Jesus advocates on our behalf to the Father. And what a great comfort that should bring us this morning. But even still, consider John 14, 26, where Jesus said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit, helper, advocate, Comfort. These are all from the same root word. God has filled you with his spirit, his helper, to be your comforter. He has filled you with his spirit to remind your downcast spirit of the gospel. In the moments of your mourning over sin, to advocate to your heart, just as Jesus advocates to the Father, that you are forgiven, that you have been cleansed, that you stand holy and blameless before your heavenly Father. God has given us this helper to comfort us in our mourning. These are the present realities of the comfort that God extends to you in your mourning in this very moment. But what about future fulfillment? Well, right now we live in the in-between, right? It's what theologians refer to as the already and the not yet, right? There's this reality that Jesus already conquered sin once and for all. We are positionally made holy and righteous. Jesus is now seated on the throne, ruling and reigning as king of the universe. But yet it isn't completely realized yet. That won't happen until the second coming. So the reality is, right, we still wage war with our sin. Even though it's forgiven, we still struggle with it. We still wrestle with it. We look forward to a better day. 
We look forward to the fulfillment of the work that God has begun in us. And 1 Peter 1.13 speaks to this. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That grace includes the gifts of perfect sanctification and final glorification, being made perfect and sinless, not only positionally, but in actuality. The day is coming when the fight will be finished, the war will be over, and the agonizing conflict against sin in the flesh will be no more. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted in these ways. Let's continue on. We could say, blessed are those who mourn the sin of others, for they will be comforted. Is your heart grieved by the sin of others around you? Maybe it's when you look at family members or when you look at our city or at our state or at our nation and you see the moral fabric deteriorating, the name of God being trifled on. Does this move your soul to grief? Well, you're in good company because Jesus himself wept over the sin of others, over the bitter consequences and judgment and death and over the unrepentant who would never receive him. The psalmist declared, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Paul wrote of false teachers troubling the churches of his day. He said, through tears, through tears, he said, I see that they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. The present reality is this. With whatever sin comes against you, whatever sin takes root in the surrounding culture, Jesus is with you. Whether it's the grief of confronting another brother in sin or the grief of the world seemingly spinning out of control, God is with you. Actually, in the Great Commission, when he sent his disciples out, he said, I'll be with you for how long? To the end of the age. This should be great comfort to us. But even more than that, God is sovereign. He is in control, and he invites us to bring those things to him. Philippians 4, 5 through 7 says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is the benefit to those who are grieving over the sin of the world. You don't have to do it on your own. You have access to the Father to bring those burdens up to him. And guess what? He acts. Now for future fulfillment, we have a comfort in future fulfillment as well. The reality that nothing that happens under the sun, nothing that happens in this life is hidden from God's sight. He said in Luke 8, 17, that there is nothing done in secret that will not be brought to light. All the works of darkness will be exposed. We can also have confidence as we look forward to the consummation of all things, knowing that God is perfectly just. There's not an injustice. There's not an evil in this world that he is not going to ultimately make right. There's nothing that is going to go accounted for. This should comfort our hearts as we grieve what we see happening in the world around us. 
And lastly, we could say, blessed are those who mourn the loss of a brother or sister in Christ, for they shall be comforted. Here's the present reality of this. When it's a brother and sister in Christ, when it's somebody who's surrendered their life to Jesus, placed all their trust in Jesus, you have the comfort of knowing exactly where that brother or sister is once they pass. And you know with certainty that they're with Jesus. You know that their faith has become sight. They've attained their reward in heaven. They no longer have to suffer in this broken world. They've been healed of all of their troubles. And I think sometimes as Christians, we can take this for granted. I've lost many people that are close to me over the last couple of years. I know it's hard. I know it's painful. But when you're a child of God, you can be comforted knowing that death is not the end. This is a great benefit. This is a great blessing because there's all sorts of unbelieving people in this world who've lost loved ones in the last couple of years who don't know Jesus and they don't know this comfort. This is a comfort. This is a blessing that God has given to you. But there's still future fulfillment as well. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 16. Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Right? So it's not only knowing that our loved ones are with Jesus, but that we too will be joined together with them, that we will be reunited together with them one day. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away on that day every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. It's a blessing. We have this comfort, even in the passing of a brother or sister in Christ, to know that death is not the end, that we will be reunited one day in a place where there is no mourning. We mourn, but for a moment, joy comes in the morning. So my question for you this morning is very simple. Do you know these comforts? Do you know these comforts? This is the foundation of our comfort. We find the root of each of these comforts in the truth of the gospel, in that Jesus exchanged his own comfort for our own. He left his home in heaven with the Father and was born into this world, fully God, fully man, to live this sinless and righteous life we were powerless to live. 
And he ultimately went to the cross to pay the price that we owed for our sin. He gave his life as a ransom for ours. He bore the penalty for our sin. Through Jesus, you can have forgiveness for your sin. Through Jesus, you can have reconciliation to the Father. Through Jesus, you have access into the Holy of Holies to make your requests known. But get this, he not only died for your sin, but he rose from the grave and conquered the power of sin and death's tyranny over you. Through Jesus, you now have a hope that transcends the grave. These are the blessings that God has for those who mourn. As we wrap up this morning, I can't stress this enough. These these truths that we've examined this morning are only applicable. These comforts are only applicable to those who have placed their trust in Jesus. These promises, these blessings are only for those who see their spiritual bankruptcy before God, who mourn their sin, and who realize that they have no hope or right standing before God in this life or the next apart from the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, the death that he died in our place. Because unfortunately, if you haven't trusted Jesus in this way, when you die, you won't go to heaven. It doesn't matter how good of a person you are. You and I on our best day still fall pitifully pitifully short of God's righteous standard. Furthermore, when you mourn in this life, there will be no lasting comfort, no person, no substance, no amount of money, no material possessions will ever be enough. The reality would be that you still have no inheritance, that you will find no satisfaction in this life or the next. So will you come to the cross? Will you confess with your mouth and will you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord? Now, for those of us who have made that decision, get this. In our mourning, we don't have to fight for victory over these things because Jesus already secured the victory. May this empower us because whatever grief may come your way in this life, you have greater comfort. The grief may come for a moment, but your comfort lasts for all eternity. And I don't know what burdens you came through those doors with this morning, but what I do know is that whatever grief you are dealing with in this season of life, it wasn't meant to drive you downward in despair, but upward in prayer where you can find comfort, where you can experience the blessing of your Father's comfort. Those who mourn these things are blessed because they know the comfort of God. He is near to them. I don't, I don't know about you, but for me, when I think back on my life, when I go, man, when have I had the most contentment in Christ? When have I felt the most comfort in Christ? Right? It's usually not the mountaintop. That's usually where I screw it up. The mountaintop is usually where I'm like, I've got this under control. I'm pretty good. But then when I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, when I'm driven to despair, when I'm broken over the sin in me, when I'm broken in the sin against me or the sin that I see in the world, when I'm broken over a loved one who's gone on to glory, there I know the nearness of the Lord. That is why this is such a blessing to us.
Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, how great a blessing is sorrow since it gives room for the Lord to administer comfort. Our griefs are blessed for they, point, for they are our points of contact with the divine comforter. Our morning hours have brought more comfort to us than our days of cheerfulness. And I'll leave you with this from Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Father, you have been so good to us. Father, apart from your intervention, all of us who are on a one-way train to eternal damnation and eternal separation from you. But because of your love, you intervened. Because of your love for us, Jesus, you forsook the comfort of heaven and came to this earth that we may be comforted. And you lived that life that we couldn't live. You died the death that we deserved to die. And you secured our comfort through your substitutionary death in our place. And you conquered the stronghold of death over us. You conquered the power of sin over us through your resurrection. God, you have given us right standing. You have given us resurrection. But God, even more than that, you've given us the blessing that is nearness to you. So God, for any who may be feeling a particular weight this morning, God, may they hold fast to these truths. May they hold fast to these scriptures that as they mourn, God, they are not forsaken. That as they mourn, God, that it's not meant to drive them to despair, but God, it's meant to drive them upwards in prayer to experience your nearness to experience your comfort. And God, we look forward to that great day when an end will be made to all that mourns us, to all that we grieve once and for all. The day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that you are Lord. So God, will you, will you comfort our hearts this morning? But will it not stop there, God? Will you use us this week in our homes? Will you use us in our places of work? Will you use us in this city, at the coffee shop, at the bakery, at the grocery store to be those who also administer comfort in the gospel as we have been comforted? Will you do this in us, Lord? I pray and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.